Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solveto. Continuous learning is the driver for success, growth, and well being. Learn or expire. Keep your Azure skills up to date. Act now by going to slash pro. I'm Tobias, and I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Toby. It is the first winter in the new house. I've come to this realization now. And last night we got about 10 to 15 centimeters of snow. And I, I think it's about four to six inches. So doing the snow shoveling with the kids, it's, it's actually quite fun. Heating the house, testing that the indoor temperature stays at the desired level. Not too warm, not too cold, something, something nice. Tweaking the settings. You know, you have a lot of technology nowadays in the houses. So tweaking the settings here and there. I quite like it. But if you ask me again, let's say, four months from now when the winter is over. Do I still like shoveling the snow? Perhaps not. But for the first weeks, I, I think it's quite fun. <laughs> yeah, we don't have snow down here, but still relatable with the cold. I guess these days we, we just have to take care with not dialing, up, dialing it up too much because of the electricity bills going haywire. So on my side, I am settling down again in the saddle after visiting the ESPC conference in Copenhagen. That was a real blast. And it was real fun to meet everyone again in person because we haven't done that for, or I haven't done that for many years. I haven't been to a conference in perhaps four or five years at least. So it was a lot of fun to meet up. And as per usual, I don't really go to the sessions. I'm there for the people and that paid off. You know, I got in touch with a lot of new acquaintances and I reconnected with a lot of old friends as well. And I think that's worth it for me, like visiting a conference, you can usually watch the sessions recorded from at a lot of the conferences, but you cannot kind of get the personal one-on-one -on -one meeting in a digital landscape. So that's what I've been trying to do because we talked in this show a couple of times about attending Ignite virtually and attending Build virtually and like other conferences virtually. And that works great if you're there only for the content, but if you're there for the people, that is not easy to do virtually. So I was super excited to see, you know, this coming to full steam and, and everyone being uh, on site. And we also recorded our previous episode from the conference, and that worked out pretty well too. So I'm I'm happy. I'm still on a you know on a high after meeting all people and and you know new and old friends. And I hope to do that again pretty soon. Not wait another five years, but hopefully at least one or two conferences per year to to reconnect, collect stories, collect new memories. And uh, yeah, just build new friendships and and expand the network. I quite did like that as as well. And it's interesting when you see a lot of people you know, friends from the community, that everybody was very excited to be there. And and that's perhaps because this was the first time you could really organize a large event after or 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 before the pandemic, if you will. Alrighty, so today we will be talking about Azure updates. I, I think this will be the last Azure updates episode of the year. So we've stacked up quite a bit of announcements from Microsoft on everything we find interesting and perhaps useful around Azure. So let me start first. What's generally available now is Postgres 15 support in Azure Cosmos DB. And this is interesting because I sort of knew that Postgres support was built in to Cosmos DB 
but I didn't realize it was only a few months ago that it became available. So what this means is that with the latest support with the version 15, Microsoft is utilizing the Citus open source extension for Cosmos DB that then connects to Postgres. And what this means is that you can provision a Cosmos DB collection and you can define that as being compatible with the Postgres 15 now by utilizing the, uh, the extension. And whatever you do in your application now, you can call back to your data layer by using Postgres SQL statements instead of something else. I've been exposed to this a couple of times this year in needing the support for Postgres in Cosmos DB. And I'm happy now that it's sort of catching up, if you will, by having the latest support before you have to wait up to a year to actually get up to speed on something. And I think we had this problem with MongoDB back in the day. When Cosmos DB was available, the MongoDB up, up, um, support was there. But then you would have a developer who would need to utilize something fancy in their MongoDB query. But Cosmos did simply not support that because it was not up to speed with whatever version the MongoDB was intended to be run. A fun fact here as well, Postgres, if you talk to anybody in Finland who is a developer and, and would like to use Postgres, they never say Postgres. They say it's the piggy because it <laughs> translates quite literally in a slang word to the piggy in Finnish. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. So on my side, I have a lot of updates from Defender for Cloud because I feel it was a you know, some good time since it has passed since we last did that. And I really like to run by the security updates that I know are appreciated and really to to ensure we stay up to date with whatever comes out. And there's been quite a quite a few changes and additions lately. So I'm I'm just gonna bundle up a bunch of things here. So I let me start with uh two updates and they're both in GA, so they're available right now. Uh, you can protect containers across your GCP organization with Defender for Containers. We're seeing more and more investments in multi-cloud every single day, and I love that. So Defender for Containers, that helps you protect standard JKA, that's how I think you say it, JKA, K-E, <laughs> the Google Kubernetes edition. Those clusters, you can now protect them across an entire GCP organization using Defender for Containers. So multi-cloud, it is expanding, like the support for protecting your multi-cloud resources is also expanding, even if I cannot pronounce that thing uh, properly. And the other thing that is also in GA now, which is available, is that you can validate Defender for Containers protections with sample alerts. And this is super interesting because this is something I have had a lot of issues with. So it's a super cool capability, and it means that you can generate new sample alerts and these can then help you validate the security alert configuration that you have. Like if you have a CM integration to maybe uh, Microsoft Sentinel, if you have workflow automations like logic apps. So whenever you get an alert of this type and that severity, this logic app should be triggered or this action should be taken. And, and even for your email notifications. Um, so sample alerts, they're presented as being from AKS, Arc Connected Clusters, EKS and JKE resources, I could say it now. And they have different severities and like on the Mitra attack uh, tactics as well. 
And the reason this is super interesting to me is, you know, at scale, at some point we could get hundred thousand alerts, and a, a few of them, or half of them, let's say, were security alerts, but not necessarily something that was a threat, but more like maybe you want to be aware, or maybe here's an audit log, you know, in the security area, something that is good to have in the logs, but maybe not something you need to take action on. And and then for the things you needed to take action on, when you then have a hundred thousand alerts in your inbox, it's super tricky, right? So we we've seen a move over the last couple of years to more automated uh, management uh, and response to alerts. So whenever something is triggering an alert, whenever you can figure out a way to automate that, that's awesome. So if it's something that you know you can figure out automatically, or there's a few steps you need to take to verify whatever alert comes your way, you can automate that uh, using like workflow automations with logic apps or, or just push it over to Sentinel and take whatever action you need on there. But how do you test those things? How do you test like when you've created those logic apps? How do you know that they're working? How do you know at scale that they're working? And your SOC, your security operations center will absolutely love you for this. So if you start using this capability, validate Defender for, uh, Defender for Containers protection with sample alerts and start generating sample alerts, then you can actually test your mitigation tactics and response tactics. And that is key. That is super cool. So I absolutely love that. Super cool, super slim update. Like the, the update is very simple. You can enable those sample alerts, but the impact this has in a lot of organizations for your security teams, for your entire security posture, super cool. That's the update. I find this super interesting. I've used the sample alerts in Defender for Cloud whenever I demo something in Defender for Cloud. And, and I do use that for the bi-directional alerts capability so that they will pop up in Sentinel as well. But for the Defender for Containers, this is interesting. Alrighty, next on my list, this is a brief one. And I'm not sure how many in, in, in our listening base will find this super useful. But this is also something that I feel that that we don't often think about since we are already so deep into Azure. So what's generally available is more free services for new and upcoming Azure Pay-as-you-go customers. Whatever Azure subscriptions I have, I always have a credit card in there, or then it's some sort of a pay-as-you-go sponsorship subscription, perhaps through the Microsoft Partner Program or then it's a customer subscription, perhaps from EA or CSP or something else. So this affects none of those. This will affect those individuals and those perhaps small businesses who want to evaluate and learn more about Azure. So they can enroll and for the first 30 days, Azure will be free. And it includes now a total of 55 services. You have the app service, Azure Functions, virtual machines, SQL databases, and so on. And after those 30 days, which is sort of the trial period, if you put in your credit card, you get 11 months free if you do not exceed a set quota in terms of how much you're utilizing those services. So on paper, yes, it is 12 months free. But if you exceed some sort of given quota, I think it's $150 or some such, then you eventually will have to pay for any, any of the overdrafts on that. But even then, I feel this is very useful for a lot of companies who want to evaluate something in Azure 
before really committing to going all in and embracing whatever you have in there. So I feel it makes it less intimidating in evaluating something before you commit to paying something for Azure. Yeah, I really like that as well. There's been a lot of changes over the years with how these things work, but I like one thing that I like about all these different, like all cloud providers really, they offer a capability to say, hey, you want to try our cloud? You can do that at no cost. You know, there's a bunch of free services. You can use them and, and this is how they work. And you can do that in Azure. And I, I love that. But you can also do it that I recently did in, in both AWS and GCP as well. So I love that capability and, and I like the changes here as well. Adding a credit card should not be a big problem. If you don't exceed that limit, you can even set the budget so you don't actually exceed it. Uh, but getting a full year free services, it's pretty cool. Now, the next update I have on my end, it's actually two other updates. And this one is GA. It's available right now. There's a new plan, Defender Cloud Security Posture Management, CSPM. So CSPM provides you with like hardening guidance to efficiently and effectively improve your security. You can get visibility into your current security posture. And this new plan for Defender kind of enhances the security capabilities of Defender for Cloud. And now it includes uh, a bunch of new and expanded features, like continuous assessment of the security configurations for your cloud resources. This is something we've seen a long time, but they're you know, expanded on that. Security recommendations to fix misconfigurations and weaknesses, secure score governance, regulatory compliance, cloud security graph, attack path analysis, very cool thing. I think we should have an episode on that. Uh, and agentless scanning for machines, which I'm going to talk about a little bit as well. I particularly like the governance thing. I think we mentioned that in, in an update show as well. We might also have an opportunity to do a full episode on that because that is super helpful for organizations. So this new plan um, exists now in Defender for Cloud. You can go there and can check the plans out and you have uh, the CSPM or the Defender Cloud Security Posture Management plan that gives you a little bit yeah, extended capabilities. Now, one of the things I mentioned is agentless scanning for Azure and AWS machines or uh, agentless scanning. And this is now in preview. And you can scan VMs for installed software and software vulnerabilities like CVEs without the challenge of agent installation and maintenance. No network connectivity requirements, no performance impact on the machine. You don't have to remote in there or even you know, instruct the cloud to say, hey, deploy a bunch of agents on these machines. You can now do you know, do these scans agentless. So it's powered by Microsoft Defender Vulnerability Management, and it's available with Defender Cloud Security Posture Management. So if you're on that plan, you can get that, or Defender for Servers P2. Uh, and this agentless scanning has native support for AWS and Azure VMs. So that's a pretty cool update. I, I really like the, the way this is going, where you don't you can now take a, another step back. Like if you look at the big story, we migrated from on-prem data centers to the cloud to kind of avoid the maintenance and all this stuff and not having to deal with always updates and whatever we move to pass and, and, and whatever. And now it's yet another step to say, hey, you have your IaaS, you have your infrastructure running as a service here, you have a bunch of v VMs, but you don't have to manage the agents running on those anymore because we do that agentless. We can just take a look into the machine from the security posture management from here and, and scan the installed software and find any um, CVEs that may be 
uh, a problem. And I really like that. So yet another step to simplify things, but still gives you a single pane of glass from Defender where you can really see and get insights into all this stuff you have across your, your cloud estate. I really like do do like this as well. One thing that I was reminded of, I think you mentioned the, uh, the in Defender for Cloud in, in getting the alerts. What I nowadays use also for testing that my Sentinel setup or my Defender for Cloud setup works is that I simply use Zoomit. So, so that's the free tool from Sys Internals, which is part of Microsoft. You download Zoomit, the 64-bit version, because there's some trickery in there. I recall seeing a talk from Mark Rusinovich on, on how they implemented that one. And when you run that from a shady directory on your Windows box, like, like the temp directory, it will start alerting your Defender for Cloud that something shady is really happening <laughs> on the endpoint. So I'm testing that to see if our SOC team is awake. Oh, Yusuf is doing something with his presentation. <laughs> Yusuf is doing a presentation at night. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. For me, I do have two really quick updates here. The first one is in public preview, the Go language support on Azure App Service. I know nothing about the Go language. Uh, when I was a kid, I did read through the official C programming language book a couple of times. I wasn't really good with C. I did do a couple of projects with that, but it was very cumbersome for me to really utilize. And then .NET became available in 2001 or something, so I switched to that side. But Go language is sort of based on C. So the syntax I understand is, is vaguely similar because they share some of the same, same inventors of the language. And this is driven by Google. So it's interesting to see something like this that I know is already quite widely used becoming available in Azure App Service. The, the next one also, this is a short one, is that Microsoft has, has announced a plan for IPv6 support for Microsoft Azure Active Directory. So there's nothing available today, but there's a plan that the introduction of this capability will start on the last day of March 2023. And what this means is that IPv4 that we use today will continue as is, but IPv6 will be supported on the side. So it will be this sort of a dual stack support. And how this will eventually affect you perhaps, is if you have conditional access policies that are set to IP ranges or IP addresses, then you have to tweak those to include IPv6 support if you utilize IPv6 elsewhere, and or if you have named locations for network boundaries that are then tied to whatever in Azure AD, perhaps for MFA, then you also have to tweak those settings. So if for now, you're mostly on IPv4, and you have no plans of perhaps embracing IPv6. This will change nothing for you. But eventually, and I do not know when, IPv6 might be something we use more and more, uh, not just behind the scenes, but actually when we are configuring something. I did have to look up because I think I've heard so much about IPv6, but I'm not hugely exposed to IPv6 in my line of work. In 1998, the draft standard for IPv6 was introduced. And already in 2017, 
eighth was created as a standard. So we've had that almost for what more than 20 years now. But even so, I, I think everything sort of revolves around IPv6 addresses and IPv6, uh, IPv4 planning, I mean. So IPv6 coming, there's a plan, things will get in motion end of March. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Interesting that you say that this happened in the 90s or started getting drafted, because I remember growing up and I'm, you know, I'm at the age now that when I grew up, we had a modem, we had to call the internet and our landline phone did not work during that time. Or if we got an incoming call, our internet got, got disconnected. And, you know, I'm sure that there's a few people who can relate to that noise the modem makes. And I, I can remember every single tone that my modem did. And I could also remember when we dialed the internet, sometimes you had to restart the dialing because something went wrong in the in the dialing. And I can remember hearing that before the error message came up, I knew that, okay, this did not actually dial the internet the correct way because it was the right the wrong tone. This reminds me of conversations we had growing up where even our teachers in school said, all the IP addresses in the world will run out before year 2010 or whatever they said. It you know permanently it will run out. There will be no more IP addresses. Therefore, we spent a lot of time in school learning about IPv6, and that was like magic. You had these super long IP addresses. But just some trivia, and and to add on to that, yes, I also have not been exposed a lot to IPv6 in my line of work. Now the next update on me is also about Defender for Cloud. Surprise! I have a lot of those today, and. I have a very long list of, of interesting things that's happened there, but let's make this the last one for today. This is now in preview, and I think actually we will dedicate a full entire episode for this. So this is Defender for DevOps, which is now part of Defender for Cloud. And I think that's worth mentioning here, even if we then later dedicate a full episode. So if you haven't seen it, it will help you with kind of shifting left and strengthening your DevSecOps processes and things like that. You get visibility to Azure DevOps and GitHub, and you can onboard your repository. So essentially, from Defender for DevOps, you can connect to GitHub, you can connect to Azure DevOps. It can see your environments and systems and what pipelines you have and, and what repositories you have, what you have in those repositories. And then there's a bunch of tools that run under the umbrella of Defender for DevOps. And the results presented, you can see that in a single pane of glass, which is in Defender for Cloud under then Defender for DevOps. And I really like this because a lot of the things we get here, they already exist in a bunch of different tools and various tools, but now we kind of collect that into a single pane of glass. So more and more things happen within Defender for Cloud and it's amazing. And some of these tools are Bandit, which is a Python code analysis tool, Binskim, which is a binary scanner for, for files to find exploits and, and issues within binary files, ESLint for JavaScript analysis, CredScan, and this is a tool that is only running for Azure DevOps because in GitHub, you have Dependabot with the security scanners for credentials, which is doing something similar. You also have Template Analyze, which is analyzing ARM template and bicep files, TerraScan for checking Terraform, Kubernetes, JSON, and YAML files, Helm, uh, Customize for Kubernetes, Docker files, CloudFormation, all that stuff. And then Trivi, which is scanning container images, file systems, and Git repos. So there's a bunch of tools bundled here into one uh, and that is now in preview so we're not going to talk more about it today i want to elaborate and expand on all the capabilities in uh, in a separate episode but right now as a preview you can go and take a look at defender for devops and you will find that if you go to 
at Defender for Cloud, and then in the in the menu you'll just see Defender for DevOps or DevOps. From there you can start exploring this and just connecting to your repositories. It's super helpful, very cool. Uh, but if you're already on top of your security game, you might already have these things and you might already have the insights and code analysis and, and template analysis and all this stuff. Um, if you don't, this is a single click capability where you will get that at your fingertips. Super helpful. I really like this update. I haven't had a chance to really use Defender for DevOps yet, but before we do the episode, I'll be sure to spin it up and and get the basics as well, because I, I feel there's a lot of useful stuff included in there. The second to last update on my list is interesting updates to Azure Monitor. So there's a new custom log API for Azure Monitor. And I recall we've talked about this API perhaps once or twice in the, in the past years in this show. I haven't tried the new API, but I did have a brief look and it, it looks surprisingly simple. So essentially it's a REST endpoint where you can push your custom or structured API, uh, logs to the API so that they will land in the log analytics workspace. That's the first bit on this update. But more interestingly, there's an update to the data collection rules, the DCR, which is part of Azure Monitor. So what you can now do, you can apply DCR for any logs you are collecting through the diagnostic settings. So perhaps you have an Azure storage account, you want to get the diagnostic logs, and you want to land those to a logs analytics workspace, and then that will be picked up by Sentinel, for example. You can now apply DCR in between. That's, that's one of the capabilities. The other one is, that you can use DCR for Microsoft Sentinel connectors. And I believe this was not possible before. And by Sentinel connectors, it should also include the built-in, the default connectors. So why would you need this? Perhaps you're ingesting logs from whatever external system, but you get a lot of noise and you end up paying for that noise because you get a lot of rows in your log analytics and then you're filtering out stuff later on. But once it lands into log analytics, you are already paying for that. So it seems now with the new DCR uh, updates, you can apply a KQL-based query to filter out stuff you do not need before it lands in log analytics and before it lands to Sentinel. And one last bit on the DCR bits is that it also works for uh, the AMA, and the MMA agents. So AMA is the Azure Monitor agent, that's the newer one, and MMA is the Microsoft Monitoring agent used by Log Analytics. So you can apply DCR rules for, for both of these agents. Perhaps you're collecting stuff from virtual machines, for example, and you can filter out stuff or transform whatever you want to land in Log Analytics. I really, really like this. And, and this is something I struggled with a lot in the past, like how much data do we ingest and where do we draw the line and how do we configure that? And for a lot of the custom application code, we we could just log ship from the applications to a log analytics workspace through App Insights, and then we could decide what log level do you want in your application. But whenever you connect containers and VMs and everything that's out of the box, you kind of need that configurability where you say, I only want the high severity alerts, or I only want this or that type of information, not everything. Because as soon as you enable a full diagnostic logs, and imagine you have 200 or 500 containers running 24 seven 
you know, spread across the globe in different data centers, it's going to be a, a huge amount of data just saying container started, container stopped, this happened, that happened. You might not care about that. So having those kind of filters before it's ingested, super helpful. Uh, otherwise, the bill will quickly go up. Um, and I've, I've seen that firsthand, which is it's not ideal to figure out where that cost is coming from and how that happened and how can we figure that out. So final update from me today is a preview feature for Azure SQL triggers for Azure Functions. So you can trigger from nearly any SQL database and you can enable change tracking and develop uh, like event-driven apps for Azure Functions using SQL database. So Azure SQL database, Azure SQL managed instance, and SQL Server, they're all compatible with the Azure SQL trigger for Azure Functions. And that's now in public preview. This is available for the Elastic Premium plan for C-sharp Azure Functions. So I think that's a, a pretty interesting update. I know a lot of people are using Functions. I'm using Functions for a bunch of things. And one thing that was missing in the past was like a solid way to say, this happened in my SQL Server and therefore I want to take action. You know, we, we worked around that, you know, both using sort procedures and we worked around it using like monitors that took a look into the SQL Server and then figured, okay, something seems to have changed since the last time we checked, which means we can then trigger an event. Now you have Azure SQL triggers built in where you can say to your function, hey, you, I want to bind in this trigger. I want to bind in the Azure SQL Server. Uh, and or, or the Azure SQL database. And whenever this or that happens, I want to trigger something in the function and then you can take action. So a small update, but uh, I know a lot of people are using Azure SQL and using Azure Functions. So now there might be an opportunity to combine the two if that supports your business logic. Good stuff. The last bit on my list is, is something that's in public preview. Azure Bastion now supports shareable links. So this is essentially a fairly simple capability. It gives you a deep link to connect directly to a desired target virtual machine without the need to go to Azure portal, click the resource group, find the VM, go to connect, click on the connect link, getting the RDP or SSH details, and then finally connecting. So you can now share the shareable link with perhaps a developer or an ops person and say, click on this, and you will immediately authenticate against the VM. So you need to expose less permissions on that VM as well, because they do not need the access to go to the resource group as a contributor, perhaps, to see something about and, and perhaps gather information about the setup of the VM. So there's a new set of permissions underneath the, uh, the Microsoft.network permissions for the VM called create shareable links and delete shareable links and get shareable links actions. This is great. It works for RDP and SSH, both meaning Linux and VM, um, uh, Windows VMs. What does not work though, is that I figured I will be using this already in the public preview. So I spun up a Linux VM and instead of using a local account, I wanted to use Azure AD based authentication so that I would utilize Azure AD accounts and it doesn't work through there. So the deep link simply is not supporting this for now. Perhaps by the time this episode comes out, the support will be in there. But based on my tests, it's not there yet. Hopefully someday. All right, cool. Alrighty, that was the last on the list. Quite a bit of updates in, in recent weeks. 
The last bit we have is the unexpected question. And Toby, are you ready? I will be asking you the unexpected question. <laughs> okay, let's go. What's the worst advice you've ever received? Oh, wow. <laughs> ever. Okay. Well, there's there's something that's very relatable to our industry. And uh, in 2001, it could have been 1999. I worked in a place from 99 to 2001. Um, I worked at a global company in the IT department, you know, helping them with help desk stuff and installing servers and whatever. And when you rolled out a server back then, it actually meant you put it on a, a wheel cart and you rolled it out into the actual manufacturing place. That's how you rolled out a server. Quite different from today. Anyway, I was working there in 2001 and several of their in-house developers and their so-called IT architects, I think, I don't know if that was a, a role, if that's what they were called back then. They were very explicit to not get into web development. And the reason we talked about that was, was I studied web development at the time, or I went in to study that um, you know, slightly later, but that was my interest because I was developing HTML web pages and, you know, whatever, using iframes and stuff like that. They were very explicit not to get into web development because that's never going to work, quote, end quote. Only mainframe development and Windows development will grow in the future, which is what you know several of the people in that company said. And, and I'm not sure if they're still there uh, working on their mainframe and Windows stuff. Thank you for the advice, but no thank you. I'm very happy that I went into the web route and actually pursued you know, web development. And I mean, this is early on. This is 20 years ago. Web development was not a big thing. And, you know, development on machines, that was a thing. And you could make, you know, okay amount of money, but developers were not attractive on the market like they are today. Back then, it was just a job. You had a bunch of developers in a company, and that's it. But I'm happy I did not take that advice. So that was a pretty serious, you know, to answer the question with a, a serious angle. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy I did not take that advice. That may have been the worst career advice I had from several people. And, you know, mind you, I was very young at this age. I was, what, around 20-something, 20 22, maybe 20, not even that. I don't even know. It was a long time ago. I, I wasn't even 20, I think. And when you have all these successful people working as developers and architects and whatever, and you're so young, maybe I was 16, maybe I was 18, I don't really recall exact, exactly what, when this was. And when you're that young and you have so many people that you look, look up to in the industry saying you should not do what you think you're going to do, it, it's, it was a challenge for me to bend my mind around this and say, I'm going to do it anyway because I believe in it. There was no such thing as web development. That was not a big thing. Uh, developers existed and you could learn to program. Like you back then you learned how to program. But yeah, some trivia around that anyway. The second worst advice is you should not drink juice after you eat something called Kalles caviar, which is a Swedish type of caviar paste. If you do that, you will regret it. Do not do that. I got an advice saying, hey, you should try this out. And to ever get whoever gave me that advice, thank you. But no, thank you. I will never do that again. Uh, you have ruined ruined my uh, that side of life and, and caviar for me. So don't do that. That sounds awful, the second one at least. For the first one, I really can't blame the, the mainframe and IT admin people of, of the time because web development, as I recall it, in, in early 2000, it was a lot of 
using the blink tag and a lot of awful JavaScript, really trying to <laughs> learn. The marquee text coming yes. flying in from the side. <laughs> exactly. How do I do a pop-up for the user? Un under even construction gifts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that at the time, it was just playing around and, and you had a mainframe. It did real business at the same time. Alrighty. This was fun as always. Thank you for tuning in. We'll have a fresh episode for you again next week on Wednesday. Bye-bye. All right. See you then.